You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. We are gathered here as advisors, as scientists. Witch. Welcome to Mission Spooky. I'm your only host today, Kiki. I gave Court and JC the day off. They needed a little mental health break, let's just say, right? All the stuff we've been talking about lately has been a little bit cray. And um, since it is just me, I'm going to change things up just a little bit and lead in with something that is very much part of today's story, but also something that most folks don't really like to talk about too much. Maybe it's a little bit uncomfortable for y'all, but it's something that we uh, need to realize in ourselves and acknowledge that we may have some issues with and that maybe they need to be resolved. And what I'm going to talk about real quick is cultural bias or implicit racial bias. Now, we're a spooky podcast, I know, and I definitely have a horrific story to share with you all today. But this story today is very much about racial bias, racism and cultural bias. And all of it, unfortunately, leads to murder. And not just any murder, the most horrific massacre that occurred during the Revolutionary War. Now, I get if you're not interested in what I'm about to explain to you, so feel free to skip ahead past the commercial. But before you flip forward to the story, consider this. There is a theory in the paranormal community that locations where great suffering, death, and torture have occurred, well, those places are poisoned, if you will. That there's a lasting negative impression that breaks through sometimes. Some believe that those of us who are sensitive to such timeless emotions are responsible for calling forth the ghosts of the past. If we as a paranormal community hold such beliefs, then it's important to discuss how that suffering happened. And if in this case, that suffering and death is a direct result of racial or cultural bias, then it is our responsibility to learn more about it. And we should strive to understand biases within ourselves. And speaking from my own experience, this is only going to make us better investigators, more compassionate investigators, and more informed investigators. We should help others through their own biases, and most importantly, we should hold others accountable when they show signs of overt racism or cultural genocide. Because as far back as I can remember, the paranormal community was a welcoming place, a place where everyone, no matter culture, heritage, gender, sexual orientation, we were all the weird kids together. But if you want to stick with me for a few minutes here, I'm going to relay the knowledge that I have, which is based on both academics and developing training courses on this very subject. But don't worry, this isn't a full training course. It's just a very quick overview for those of you interested. And it might help you understand a little bit about why it's important to this particular story. So academia and cultural community leaders have said that it's very important to make a distinction between implicit racial bias and overt racism or discrimination. I was taught that implicit biases are associations made by folks in an unconscious state of mind and that the individual is likely not aware of the bias association. That all these unknown biases can result in a person acting in a discriminatory way, although they don't really mean to. Your biases are shaped by the world around you, and if the world around you is constantly set to only one culture succeeding, well, you're inevitably going to take on some unconscious thoughts and associations and make them part of your own reality. 
No one's immune to these unconscious associations, but once you're aware of implicit bias, you can create a road to addressing the issues. As an anthropologist, I spent a considerable amount of time deprogramming myself from my own cultural biases in order to conduct my research better. And it's an ongoing process. It also can't be taken lightly either, because ignoring it within our communities leads to some horrific consequences, like the ones I'm going to talk about today. My early training in what we then called cultural bias or unconscious discrimination, well, that's over 25 years old. Unfortunately, today, some folks downplay implicit racial bias, using it as an out for their explicit racial behavior. Folks like this will say, I should be excused because I didn't know any better. If you ever encounter these folks, point them towards the plethora of Black-led and Indigenous-led TED Talks, free courses that you can take. There's also a test you can take online that helps you identify your biases. It may be that you have zero bias when it comes to people of color, but you have deep-seated negative biases towards persons with disabilities. It can be a very eye-opening and introspective experience, which is why I say that sometimes people just don't want to do it. It can be very uncomfortable. My experience with implicit racial bias has been relatively positive in that I was the one seeking to improve or I was teaching others who wanted to improve. Whereas folks who responded to some of my recent Twitter comments I made have been involved in training outside academia and dealing with folks who may not even want to be sitting in the room for said training. Basically, my rose-colored glasses view as opposed to a starker reality. During this recent Twitter conversation, someone said that semantics don't matter and that implicit bias and overt racism are both getting folks killed. And that really struck a chord with me. You see, I've always looked at implicit cultural or racial bias as something less destructive than overt racism. And that's mostly because my training has been with academics. Or as I said, folks showing up for a training because they wanted to be there. But this week, we witnessed implicit bias lead to death, and it was all caught on tape. An elderly woman was turned away from two separate hospitals. To any of us trained in any kind of medical or emergency procedures, our first instinct was to go back inside the hospital and ask why this person wasn't getting the help that they needed. The hospital, rather than do their job and save this woman, they called the police, who then arrested her for trespassing. She died in the backseat of that police car. Some of her last words were, please help me. I don't want to die like this. It was clear from the police officers taped evidence that they had some cultural biases against this poor woman. They'd already made up their minds that she was faking her illness, except their mistake led to her death. Those in the hospital also made that same mistake. And this is an ongoing investigation. But what we witnessed on that tape, there was zero empathy from anyone. Folks walked right past her as she pleaded for someone, anyone, to help her. As for overt racism, well, <laughs> this week has had quite a few doozies. In Hatboro, which is not far from where this podcast is based, I watched a 55-year-old woman go on an absolutely overtly racist rant about a pizza shop having a Spanish channel on a TV inside the restaurant. She called this owner un-American, and that he was spitting in the face of all those who had fought for this country. Just because he knows how to speak Spanish? Seriously? If I'd been there, I would have gladly told her, Fafanculo stronza. Because you know why? My Italian grandmother spoke two languages when she moved to this country. 
sounds completely bonkers, right? I mean, when you consider that Mexico is part of North America. So even if he's an immigrant, he's still an American. Meanwhile, in Tennessee, <laughs> well, state representative Republican Paul Sherrill, he let his racism just fly. He was discussing the HB 1245, an amendment that would allow for death by firing squad. It's just really fucked up that we even have to talk about this. But his quote is, and I saw this happen in real time. I was just wondering, could I put an amendment on that that would include hanging by a tree? Cheryl then offered to sign on as a co-sponsor to that bill. Make no mistake, there is a difference between death by hanging, which is also completely inhumane, and death by hanging from a tree. That's lynching. And if you think for one moment that he wasn't talking about lynching black folks in Tennessee, then you need to look at the facts. The archives at Tuskegee Institute break down lynchings by state from 1882 to 1968. But I'll just give you the totals. First of all, Tennessee ranks number eight in overall lynchings from that time period. 47 white folks, 204 black folks. I do want to point out that Mississippi is number one with 49 white people lynched and 539 black people lynched. It is also well known that white supremacists use lynchings as a tool of oppression against black people. So Mr. Sherrill knew exactly what he was saying and what he was implying. We have a lot of work to do in this country to do better. And many of our issues stem from deep racial biases that this country was unfortunately built on. And I'll get to that in a moment. But first, we're going to take a break for our sponsor. Welcome back, folks. We're about to delve into some really uncomfortable territory for some people. Hopefully, you guys are in a really good headspace for this one. The social warfare used by our founding fathers has shed new light on why even at the end of the Revolutionary War, there was still tension between the American colonists and the Native tribes. In his book, The Common Cause, Creating Race and Nation in the American Revolution, Robert Parkinson explains how the founding fathers pitted white colonists against not only Native tribes, but also black slaves, insisting that they were just as much a threat as the British. As I mentioned, this country was unfortunately built on the manipulation of racial biases. The 13 colonies didn't really like each other very much. I talked about this in our Pirates episodes. There was religious tension between some of them. Others, it was a matter of multiple European cultures all trying to meld together peacefully. What better way to bind together folks of different cultural backgrounds than through the, quote, common enemy trick? And the best way to spread that was through newspapers. I'm sad to say that even my beloved Ben Franklin was caught spreading lies about Native Americans killing entire families of colonists in order to create a common enemy. Entire interior columns of local newspapers were dedicated to accusing Blacks of helping the British. These fear tactics occurred during a time when 6 to 10% of the Continental Army was made up of African Americans. It's kind of messed up, y'all. We're taught that every American wanted to join the revolution. I remember this when I was a kid. Oh, gosh, yes, it was so important. We wanted to fight the British. But in Pennsylvania, for example, that was simply not the case. Most Western Pennsylvanians just wanted to farm and be left alone, with many of them being Moravians or Quaker pacifists. It took the killing of over 200 colonists to pass a temporary militia law in 1755 during the height of the French and Indian War. As I've said before, Pennsylvania did not want a militia. 
When one is finally formed, it was so disorganized and difficult to understand the internal hierarchies that military historians today write entire papers on just what the hell were they thinking? Side note, it includes a lot of charts. With fines imposed for non-compliance, poor settlers with small families were at a disadvantage. Wealthier people could avoid a draft by paying a fine. Politicians were exempt. Of course they were. And you could substitute yourself with someone else. So mercenaries took advantage of the system to make as much money as possible. And the exemptions specifically singled out religious groups like the Moravians or just completely ignored them like Quakers. And if all this sounds confusing and a bit bad, actually, uh, Pennsylvanians didn't even want to fight at all in the first two years of the Revolutionary War. So now that we have a little bit of a grasp of what was going on in this state in particular, we're going to focus ourselves back out to western Pennsylvania and Ohio. British authorities in the west at Detroit had mobilized the Ohio tribes. That's the Miami, the Shawnee, the Huron, the Wyandotte, the Mingo, and parts of the Delaware tribe, which we always call here the Lene Lenape. They were instructed to raid across the Ohio River into colonist settlements in Kentucky, western Virginia, and western Pennsylvania. To the east, you had local officials based at Fort Pitt, struggling to resist the tribal raids by building frontier forts and conducting punitive raids against native settlements. Caught in between all of this were natives that just wanted to live peacefully. Take, for example, the Lenape tribe of Pennsylvania. They had originally been friends with the British. On September 17, 1778, Chief White Eyes of the Turkey Clan, Chief Pipe, Hopacon, of the Wolf Clan, and Chief John Kilbuck, Gilelamend, of the Turtle Clan, signed the Treaty of Fort Pitt on behalf of the Lenape Delaware tribe. Andrew Lewis and Thomas Lewis, with Brigadier General McIntosh, General Broadhead, and Colonel William Crawford signing as witnesses. I'll be circling back around to Crawford in a story later this spring, and uh, Colonel Broadhead's going to come up again in a little while. This treaty recognized the Lenape as a sovereign nation. The Lenape promised to remain neutral during the Revolutionary War. They granted permission to the colonists to travel through their lands and to build a fort in the Ohio country for their protection. In exchange, the colonists promised to protect the Lenape and to provide firearms, tools, clothing, cooking utensils. Naturally, the colonists began violating this treaty less than a year after it was signed. Some Lenape sought protection in another way, by converting to the Moravian religion. Pacifist religion would also mean that they were not interested in fighting for either side. They'd remain neutral but do so through spirituality rather than a paper treaty. Early Moravian missionaries David Zeisberger and John Heckwelder were instrumental in building the community at Janetahutten. This is Ohio's oldest existing European settlement. It was founded in October of 1772 along the Tuscarawas River. The village's name is derived from German and means Huts of Grace. Many of the converted Lenape lived here in peace, offering aid to anyone who needed it, regardless of where they came from or what side they were on. Not surprisingly, when the Revolutionary War begins, neither side trusted that the Moravian Lenape were truly neutral. By the spring of 1778, several colonists left the service of Fort Pitt to join forces with the British, traveling to Fort Detroit to officially switch their allegiance. One of these men, 
Simon Gertie, suggested that the Moravian missionaries were spies working for the colonists. Simon Gertie deserves his own mini-history episode, but he'll definitely show up again in a spring episode when we discuss another tragedy that he also inserted himself into. Gertie wants the missionaries hanged, as do the British-aligned Ohio tribes. However, British authorities at Fort Detroit continued to issue orders that none of the Moravians were to be harmed. By the summer of 1781, Chief Half-King, or Pulmacan, of the Wyandots, he tells the British that if they don't do something about the Moravian missionaries, then he's going to. The British respond to this by forcibly moving the Moravians to a location near the Wyandotte tribe, a village aptly named Half-Kingstown. Well, the Moravians have a tough go of it. It's October by the time they get up there. They need to start building new housing. They have very little food for themselves, let alone their livestock. The cows begin to dry up. There's little milk for the children. It's a very bleak winter, and some Moravians die of starvation. In late February of 1782, Simon Gertie appears once again with orders for the missionaries, Zeisberger and Heckfelder, to be taken to Detroit. They're supposed to stand trial for treason. Gertie wants these two men pushed overland like, quote, cattle. It's safe to make a guess that Gertie wanted them to die before they reached Fort Detroit. However, the man he puts in charge, a Frenchman named Mr. Lavalier, has some empathy for the rheumatoid-stricken Zeisberger. The two men will eventually make it to Fort Detroit for their trial. Many tribal leaders are in the room when these accusations are made against them, and it will be Lenape Wolf Clan leader Chief Pipe who speaks up for the men, convincing the commandant they are not guilty of treason. At about the same time the missionaries are starting to make their way towards Fort Detroit, though, Half-King has agreed to let some of the Lenape return to Janadenhutten to collect crops and other supplies that are left behind. And here is where a series of very unfortunate events is about to unfold. On February 8, 1782, a small raiding party of British allied natives attacked and killed a man named John Fink in Pennsylvania. A few days later, another small raiding party captures a man named John Carpenter in what is now Brook County, West Virginia. Some of these natives spoke Dutch and told the young man that they were Moravian. As soon as John saw an opportunity to escape, he did so and made his way to Fort Pitt, where he reported that he was attacked by Moravian natives. On February 15th, the raiding party attacked the home of Robert Wallace, several miles from Pittsburgh. Robert was away at the time. The natives made off with his wife, Mrs. Wallace, as well as their 10-year-old son, 2-year-old son, and infant daughter. There's been a snow at this point, and Mrs. Wallace and the infant are slowing the party down. So immediately after crossing into Ohio, the raiders make a decision that most likely sealed the fate of the Moravian natives. They killed Mrs. Wallace and her infant daughter. And here's why I have to give you a warning. It's about to get super grim. They then impaled the naked bodies of both Mrs. Wallace and her daughter, posing them as if they were looking down the trail towards anyone who would have been in pursuit of the raiders. At Fort Pitt, the colonists were just coming to the realization that these raiding parties were using the abandoned buildings at Janadenhutten as resting points. 
In early March of 1782, General Gibson at Fort Pitt organizes a party of his own. This is made up of a Pennsylvania militiamen under the command of Lieutenant Colonel David Williamson. They're supposed to go into Ohio, look into these abandoned buildings at Janata Hutton, as well as the sister Moravian towns of Salem and Schoenbrunn. Robert Wallace will arrive just in time to join this expedition. Now he's hoping to find his wife and children and bring them home alive. As many of you may have gathered by now, these militiamen are going to round that curve in that trail in Ohio in just a few days. And uh, they're going to be met with the disturbing and gruesome sight of Mrs. Wallace and her baby daughter. Before I get into the obvious reaction of these men to what they've seen, I feel it's very necessary at this point to tell you that these militiamen are no angels. Many of these men have already participated in two terrible events. One is called the Squaw Campaign. The other is the Coshocton Massacre. Both of these occur before the events of Janeta Hutton and before this murder of Mrs. Wallace. The Squaw Campaign was basically these very men killing women and children some of them even fighting over who shot a young boy and another scalping an elderly woman. It's also at this point that General Hand of Fort Pitt has called the militiamen in western Pennsylvania unruly, uncivilized, and unwilling to follow orders from their superior officers. Hand wants to be reassigned. He wants to go back to what he considers, quote, the regular army back east. The Coshocton massacre is no different. Colonel Broadhead, who I mentioned earlier, well, he's taking these same men on a peace mission to speak with Delaware chiefs and to reinforce that 1778 Lenape Treaty, right? Without getting into too much of the details, let's just cut right to the chase. The peace mission is going to end with 16 natives surrendering to troops that they believed were going to hold true to that 1778 treaty and protect them, only to be immediately killed and scalped by these militiamen. Broadhead's army is then going to take women and children as prisoners, and the village of Coshocton is going to be decimated. These very same militiamen wanted to continue killing and take on Janeta Hutton, Schoenbrunn, and Salem next. They're stopped by Colonel David Shepard. This was not an army of trained and disciplined men. This was a band of rogue serial killers who were bent on murder. And now... Even though they had broken treaties and killed many innocent women and children already, now they see Mrs. Wallace and her daughter and decide that this is too much for them to handle. So what do these patriots decide to do? I'm sure you've already come to the grim conclusion, but I'll go ahead and paint the picture for you. The army arrived in Janeta Hutton. The military encountered a man named Joseph Shabosh. He is half Indian and half white. Shabosh is going to beg them for his life, but these militiamen, uh, one of them in particular named Charles Bilderback, he is going to kill him with a tomahawk and scalp him immediately. The militiamen demanded that the natives give up their arms to prevent any hostile actions against them. Peaceful Moravians, will they comply with that request? The militiamen think they see some items laying around their town, possibly taken from raids from their homes in Pennsylvania. Now, this does make Colonel Williamson think about it, and he decides that the best course of action at this point is to just take all of them back to Fort Pitt for questioning, 
possibly a trial, depending on how those questions are answered. The natives are confined to two cabins, men in one, women and children in the other. But Robert Wallace, our grieving father and husband, well, he thinks he notices a young native girl wearing his wife's dress. He swears it's hers, that he watched her make it with his own eyes. The girl tells him that it was given to her by natives who were passing through and that it was given in exchange for food. As I said, they were neutral in that it did not matter who you were. They did give food and comfort to everyone. But do the militiamen believe her? No. I mean, why would they? Everything that they have seen up until now has been carefully orchestrated by their enemies. Everything from putting the word Moravian into the minds of those militiamen at Fort Pitt, to leaving behind items from raids in Janetahutten, to displaying Mrs. Wallace in such a degrading way, to making sure the Moravian teenager has her dress. It is all just one disinformation campaign convincing an already bloodthirsty gang of undisciplined men, more than half most likely mercenaries, that these were the natives responsible for all of their problems. The militiamen took a vote. Let that sink in for a moment. They voted. They didn't follow orders. They decided what the orders were going to be. Now, I can't find anything concerning this concept other than a few articles declaring that Pennsylvania militia were not part of the regular army. I'm sure you've guessed what the outcome's going to be here, too. It's 18 to 260 in favor of killing all the Moravian natives, accusing all of them of the murder of Mrs. Wallace and her baby. They were kind enough to inform the natives of their decision so they could gather in their meeting house and pray for most of the night. The 18 men who voted against this act decided to leave. They don't want any part of the killing. Williamson gives them permission to do so, provided that they camp out and wait to rejoin them before heading back to Fort Pitt. This way, they won't be brought up on charges of desertion. On the morning of March 8th, 241 years ago today, these self-proclaimed patriots brought the natives into two cabins to be murdered. A man named Nathan Rollins brought a large wooden mallet from a cooper shop. Rollins' father and uncle had been killed by raiding parties, but not by these natives. There's an old man there. His name is Abraham. He's taken a Christian name. He volunteers to go first. Legend has it that he had very long gray hair, which some of the militiamen wanted for a trophy. Rollins would use the mallet to stun his victims, while other patriots slit the throats of their victims. The same procedure used to kill animals in slaughterhouses at the time. The victims would then be scalped and their bodies dragged to cabins to be burned. Rollins swung that mallet 14 times before his arm gave out. Then he sat and cried, because no matter how many he killed, his grief for his father and uncle did not wane. The women and children were killed in a similar fashion, all while Colonel Williamson did nothing. Some accounts say that he didn't want any of this to happen but that he had no control over these men, and if he ordered them to stop, he would have been murdered as well. We know some of this horror due to a boy slipping through a trap door to hide in the root cellar of the cabin where the women and children were being killed. When night fell, the militiamen set fire to that cabin, but the small boy was able to escape through an opening in the foundation. He would later describe the river of blood flowing down the floorboards as the women and children above him were being slaughtered. 
Another boy named Thomas survived as well. He'd been bludgeoned and scalped and tossed into a pile of bodies. He regained consciousness and noticed his friend, Abel, attempting to sit up. Just then, militiamen brought in another body and immediately killed Abel with a tomahawk. Thomas pretended to be dead until the men left, and he managed to escape into the woods and met up with the boy from the root cellar. Happy ending, Thomas is going to survive despite being scalped. Pennsylvania militiamen killing 96 innocent Christians, 28 men, 29 women, and 39 children. Back at Fort Detroit, Zeisberger and Heckwelder are cleared of treason, but are later informed that their entire congregation of Moravian natives from Janetahuddin have been killed. These wonderful patriots went on to loot the homes of the Moravians and then burn down every cabin. Now, the massacre was widely condemned by both the colonies and the British government, as well as by the colonial public. But no criminal charges are going to be brought up against Williamson or any of the men involved. Despite it being common knowledge, they were all responsible for the massacre. Instead, George Washington is forced to issue an official warning to American armies to avoid being captured alive at all costs. The killing field remained unvisited and untouched until 1799, when a then 77-year-old Zeisberger returned to search for the remains of his friends. With the help of some others, the remains of the cabins were sifted through, and skeletons were collected and interred in a mass grave, a burial mound. In 1843, the Janetahutten Monument Society was formed to commemorate the event and erect a monument in memory of the victims of the massacre. In the 20th century, a museum was created to interpret the town's history and educate visitors about the massacre. The museum includes a replica buildings and the mound that contains the victims' remains. That burial mound is 18 feet across and 5 feet high, located about 200 feet south of the 37-foot-high monument that's made of Indiana marble. This site is on the National Registry of Historic Places. There is a plot twist, though, in this story, and that is that Zeisberger and Heckfelder were, in fact, spies for the colonies. Their letters to Fort Pitt are part of the Draper Manuscript Collection held by the Wisconsin State Historical Society. It's the only part they got right. The Janeta Hooden Massacre is now remembered as one of the most horrific acts of violence committed against Native Americans during the American Revolutionary War. While it did have many moving parts, so to speak, cultural bias, racism, and deliberate disinformation led to one of the greatest atrocities against our Native peoples. Especially for someone who lives in Pennsylvania, we were supposed to protect them, and we did not. As for the spookiness, well, it is absolutely no surprise that when visiting this area, people often swear that they hear cries, screams, muffled voices, prayers being said. It is a solemn place and probably poisoned, if you will, by the events that happened there. Thanks for sticking with me until the end, folks. This was a rough one for me, to be honest. But hey, we've got an amazing band to share with you. Jen and the Degenerates from the UK. The song today is called Runaway Blues. Now, if you're in the UK, thanks for listening. They will be playing tonight, this March 8th, 2023. They are opening for Dub War at the Bootleg Social in Blackpool at 7 p.m. Tomorrow night, they're at the Bedford Esquires in Bedford at 7.30 p.m. And I just found out a few days ago they'll be at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas on Friday the 10th 
coming up. That's at 8 p.m. That is one hell of a three-day schedule. We wish Jen and the crew all the best. Safe travels. When we get back, Spooky Squad News. today i know that's that was a bit that was a bit rough <laughs> uh to be honest with you the next few episodes because they are sort of uh his well actually the next episode is historically connected so that one's a little bit rough too after that we've got an awesome like special guest coming on so i'm pretty excited about that and then we were thinking about having a couple more of these um well they're historical horror but also ab- absolutely talking about a place that's possibly haunted uh, we might have to take a little bit of a break because Kiki, um, yeah, I I don't know how much more I can read about death and destruction and also have to deal with like the reality of it happening even now. So if you want to join the squad, head on over to patreon.com slash mission spooky. We have tiers at the one, three and five dollar levels. One single buck gets you our undying gratitude, access to our boober reels, access to our archive state episodes with just me and JC. And of course, a shout out on the cast. I honestly, uh, looking back, I'm not sure if I gave out our latest patron was Frederick. Thank you so much for joining. And uh, Devin had joined us a little while back. And I just, again, can't honestly remember if I shouted you guys out. So you know what? If you if you get an extra one, fantastic, right? Worst case scenario. The $3 level is going to get you early access to our side missions and exclusive access to my Kiki's quirks, which is other side topics I saved just for Patreon. You also receive access to the digital stat block card and art card for Cord versus Cryptid. Lastly, you have access to our exclusive state episodes, which now include Cord. So those old archived ones are going into the $1 level, and then the new ones are at the $3 level. At the $5 level, you get access to the private Discord server. It looks like once a month on a Tuesday evening, about 8, well, 8 p.m. Eastern time, you're going to be hooked in with me in that channel. And, um, yep. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, look out for that. I'll make the announcements, uh, on Patreon about what exactly, which Tuesdays we're going to be doing a quick poll to find out what you all want me to talk about. Anyone can join our regular discord community, which we are trying to grow. We have channels dedicated to cryptids, ghosts, UFOs. We got a place for you to promote yourself too. If you're an artist or author, musician, fellow podcaster, we also have a D and D chat in there and general gaming basically just come out and hang with us uh, like-minded folks 
I am doing in honor of Women's History Month, I have had already chosen our Discord donation bot fundraiser uh, that was going to have something to do with archaeology. But since we kind of um, blew right through February for Black History Month, I decided that we're going to raise some money for Black folks in archaeology, anthropology, and history. And that fundraiser then is going to be for the Society for Black Archaeologists. That was founded in 2012. You guys know how much it means to me to get kids involved so i just thought for women's history month i was going to make it even more specific and maybe we can you know help out and get some young black girls like interested in archaeology and uh you can follow us on twitter until it self-destructs and on instagram at mission spooky we're making some fun creative and changes over at instagram you've probably seen those if you're following us over there obviously don't forget to rate and review us on itunes Podchaser, and good pods just remember try to be kind it's all about doing it for the fun of it. I know, I, as I said, today's subject matter, kind of tough, but it is what it is, guys. Sorry. Yeah, I think that's going to be it for me. Kind of weird um, being here by myself, I have to say. I spent 46 minutes talking to myself. Weird. All right, well, listen. Stay spooky and don't die. But if you do, contact us. And you can do that at Mission Spooky Podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.